Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 287, Interview with Janet Morris and Chris Morris. And now, podstructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy literature. This is Sean Farrell. Today, Moses brings us a very meaty and very interesting conversation with Janet and Chris Morris. And this is much longer than our shows normally run. But I felt like if I broke it up into two shows, we would really lose the cohesiveness of the, of the discussion. There's a lot of great stuff in here, and I didn't want to lose anything. So... We're just going to run through the whole thing. It's about 85 minutes long altogether. Uh, so you, it may take a couple of sessions for you folks to listen to. But um, well worth it, and we would appreciate you coming onto social media, Facebook, Twitter, or coming to our website and sharing your thoughts on the, the blog post for this episode, 287. Letting us know what you think of the topics they discuss and what you agree with or what you don't agree with. This episode is brought to you by once again by our wonderful sponsor, Bain, specifically their audio adaptation of Islands, a novella by Eric Flint. In episode 285, I played a nice five-minute clip of this audio production, so you get to hear uh, how high quality it is. And If you haven't had a chance to listen to that yet, do go ahead and do that. You'll enjoy it, and uh, then you can come back to the website and use the show notes for the link. That will take you to the, the Bain webpage where you can purchase the audio drama of Islands by Eric Flint. Great story. You'll enjoy it. Okay, let's go ahead and get into this interview now, brought to us by Moses. Moses Siragar with Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Uh, I've got a really special interview today. I'm on the line with Janet and Chris Morris. How are you doing, guys? Hi. Thanks for having us. Hi, Moses. Hi. Welcome to the show. Uh, for those of you who don't know them, you might know of uh, the sacred... Band of Stepsons, uh, with the new book, The Sacred Band of Thebes. You might know about um, uh, Heroes in Hell, uh, sort of a shared world sort of project. Um, and you guys have written collectively over 20 novels, right? And uh, Oh, yeah, at least. If, yeah, more, like 40 more like 40. If okay. you consider all the, the shared novels done, co-writes with other people, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> we own 69 copyrights or something. Oh, wow. That's that's pretty awesome. So that's a really uh, great opportunity for us to talk to someone who, you know, well, actually a couple. You guys are married, and, uh, you know, you've been around this block for quite a while doing many different things. So um, what, what would you say you guys are, are actually most famous for in science fiction fantasy? Is, is it the non-lethal weapons concept? No, uh, yeah, non-lethal weapons is a real – it's now a real government program, and we did it. And when we were directors at a think tank in Washington, and um, that's a real thing. You know, it's got hundreds of millions of dollars against it every year in budget, and it's created a new industry. Well, I think we're more famous for that outside of science fiction and fantasy than we are in it. Um, our first book that we wrote as a Janet Morris book, Janet E. Morris, The High Couch of Solistra, um, was a quartet, and by the time the fourth one came out, the the other three had four million in print, so we kind of landed in science fiction with a big bang. Hmm. Um, and uh, 
we then went on to do the Dream Dancer trilogy. We're going to release all seven of those. I hope this year we're, we're working on it. Um, the Sacred Band started in Thieves World. And of course, Thieves World was a million copy bestseller as a series and spun off the entire Sacred Band of Stepson series. So the, the sword and sorcery, the dark fiction people, um, they prefer the beyond books, you know, beyond Sanctuary, beyond the Veil, beyond Wizard Wall that are Sacred Band of Stepson's books. And when we came back, we picked up the Sacred Band of Stepson series with a return to Thieves' World to get um, all the loose ends cleared up and finish that part of that epic um, with Lynn Abbey's permission, who was the and is the Thieves' World editor. Um, so we did that. But I think of all the books we've done, actually, I, the Sun, um, which is a a rigorous historical novel about Supalilumus, the greatest king of the Hittite Empire, is still one of our three best-selling books that, you know, constantly every month tops our list. And the other two are the Sacred Band novel um, with Chris Morris and Out Passage, the science fiction book. And one of the things that's kind of different about us is that, we voice to the character pretty closely. Um, the voice in Solistra, that personality that sees the story, is nothing like the first person in I, the Sun, and the third person in the Sacred Band series is unique to that series. It's a very historical fantasy, and we love the ancient mind. So we spend as much time as we can with in the ancient world, and we know it pretty well at this point. Um, our technology is current. You know, I mean, we um, we wrote the buying guide for the United States when the Soviet Union fell of their technology groups. But we often don't write um, hard science fiction because it's too close to work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> where the other stuff is is just completely fun. Um, the new project that we have is Rhesus of Thrace, the Black Sword, and that's a really fun project, and it's halfway between the rigorous historical novel that I, the Sun, represents and the dark or grimdark fantasy that the Sacred Band series represents because its um, main character, Rhesus of Thrace, according to Homer, was an actual guy who died the day after he arrived at Troy to fight because Athena told Odysseus and Diomedes that if he lived the night, that the Greeks would lose the war. Hmm. And there's a lot of detail. So it's as difficult to do as a rigorous historical because now that we know that in 1127 BCE, an eclipse actually is mentioned in the Iliad and in the Odyssey that dates Odysseus's return to Ithaca. It's perfectly viable to treat the Iliad and the Odyssey as true. So if you treat it as true and you accept that they had gods that actually fought and directed the fighting, then Rhesus of Thrace is a historical novel 
Hmm. If you take the Iliad and the Odyssey as historical fantasy, then it's a historical fantasy. But I love the character. And we released the very first 5,000 words in a charity anthology called Nine Heroes um, that Walter Ryan did. And so you can actually read the first 5,000 words of the Rhesus of Thrace story um, now. And we're working on the rest of it. A book like that takes much longer than a book that only has to be internally consistent. Um, a lot of fantasy and science fiction um, books require only internal consistency. And um, this more historical, more tightly linked story of this hero who was killed the first night. Um, it's a very famous episode in the Iliad called The Night Hunt, but he was the target of The Night Hunt. And um, so I'm doing him, and I'm really enjoying doing him. It's turf I haven't tried before. Um, Chris really likes that, too, so we're having a great time with it. Wow. Um, as I've mentioned, I'm a big fan of uh, the Homeric stuff myself. My uh, my son was born a few weeks ago. His middle name is, is Aeneas, so you can, oh, really? you can see where How I'm wonderful. from. But, uh, you know, I, I also write, you know, more of that ancient type uh, fantasy. And when people are doing the sort of that sort of research into the ancient world or even, you know, medieval world or some other, con you know, setting, um, what, what kind of, you know, advice do you give people for uh, going about it? You know, I, I just sort of would go at, would just find whatever I could, you know, I'd ask friends on Facebook, you know, good books on this subject or that subject. And, you know, I watched historical battles and things like this, but um, you guys sound, sounds like you've done a lot of research over the years. So, well, we did I, the son with, we hired Calvert Watkins who later became very famous. Um, he was an, a linguist at Harvard um, to give me an accelerated course in the Hittite middle second millennium to make sure that I had all my facts right. And he did what I, and I learned from him to buy the source materials, buy them physically, get the material that defines the period to the extent that you can define it. Like when was this eclipse? And um, what's the date of that battle? If you can find out um, and then do all your background we, before the Internet, it was harder and easier because it cost a fortune to get these kind of um, university press books, you know, 150 bucks for Kingship and the Gods. I still remember how much that was in 1975. Um, it was a lot of money. You could buy a car for $5,000 in those days. But And I would go through and still do go through the background materials, but the Internet makes it both most, more complicated and easier. You can get surface level information about almost anything but a lot of it is personal opinion not untrue it hasn't been peer-reviewed um, so you have to be smarter about the sources that you use and um, if you don't get deep in the characters that you want to use before you write you're going to miss opportunities so we dig hard into whatever went on in that year, if it was in a specific year. Rhesus is particularly difficult because um, he was, um, was, was called Heros Equitans, and he is a real living example of a Greek hero cult that grew up around a guy that was killed, and there's all sorts of stories of 
people being healed by going to the cave where he was, the time he spent in a cave, of what he did. So he's really almost, he's not a demigod, he's a, um, an ancient legend that we're bringing to life who began as a guy who was killed. And um, if I... At Troy. At Troy. But if I hadn't done my homework on him as deeply as I did, I wouldn't know how the story of his relationship with his wife was going to impact it or um, the degree to which Athena comes into the story. Uh, and now that I have him out of the cave and roaming around, a lot of mystical things about him, like the story that animals would walk up to him and volunteer to be sacrificed when an animal sacrifice was called for and that his relationship with animals and the rest was so deep. But when you see those paintings and sculptures of St. George and the Dragon, that all goes back to Rhesus of Thrace, that whole set of legends. So he's really deep. And the difficulty is with the mythical stuff as opposed to the historical stuff. In historical stuff, you have bones of contention, places where scholars don't agree. Um, who was Sublulius's father, really? Who was his mother, really? The Hittites didn't do king lists like some of those other countries did. And the documentation, when you actually read it, um, is sometimes contradictory. So... I did my own opinion of just how he became Tukanti, which is heir apparent, and then became king. And there was an assassination involved in that. Okay, but it's only, a, there's three or four ways that could have happened. <laughs> there aren't more. But with some of the mythical stuff, you get completely different stories associated with certain characters. Um, in the book, for example, uh, we meet Rhesus and then he meets Salmacus, who is the only rapist nymph in the Greek mythology. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really fun, but you have to know enough about how those nymphs survived and what they did. Um, she doesn't want, she needs to seduce somebody in order to have a, a sexual encounter that will then turn back her biological clock and make her young again. So she places herself in his path. She gets the gods to release him from the cave and he gets sort of herded into her clutches. And I mean, that's, it's just the stuff that you get from homework is in legendary mythical ancient historical realms taps a piece that's inside of you of our collective memory, our natural sense of how the world began and what it is about, and history that rings true in a way that nothing else does. So we tend to buy whatever we think the closest source materials are to the ancient text, and we read all of that stuff, and then we dig on the internet for articles and things that would be hard for us to find um, in areas where there's conflict, where people don't agree um, on what happened. And in those spaces where there's conflict, that's where the story is. That's really where, you know, where you're winging it 
um, with Superluliumus, we covered his whole life from the time he was 14 until his aged days. And I had a relative chronology by Kitchen, which was in the, the relativity of that chronology was the Egyptian and Hittite archives. And from that, I built the story. I had a certain set of facts that had to occur in each period of his life that I was covering, but how I covered them, that was up to me. And I get a feeling from doing the ancient stuff that I get from nothing else because we were much purer and straightforward in ancient times than we are now. Now everything has to be politically correct in a different way. Hmm. Did that answer your question? Yeah, so you, you, you say we were... Simpler, or what, what, I'm trying to think of the word you just used. Sure, we were we were more direct. We we knew why we were telling stories, and we had an idea what the posterity was, and not that there wasn't lying. I mean, Ramses II and Muwatali of Hadi, the Egyptian Ramses II, fought a famous battle called the Battle of Kadesh, and they both went home and commissioned big stone monuments saying that they won. Right. So. If you're a Hittite, you think the Hittites wanted it. And if you're an Egyptian, you think the Egyptians wanted it. <laughs> um, so, but even those things, I mean, that in its way is very pure. There is no overflight. They got no overhead. There is no satellite coverage of these battles. Nobody ever sees the whole battle. And I actually had some um, reader review that didn't like the fact that <laughs> you couldn't see the whole battle. Well, have you ever been in one? Uh, you don't. And people get fragments. They have experiences that are natural to them. And because of, we write type perspective, we never, unless it, in sanctuary, sometimes the town was a character. And in the sacred band novel, um, Stormbringer, the the uh, the ancient principle of wind and wave, took perspective, and that gets pretty metaphysical when that happens. But unless you can do that. You're not going to see it all. You're all we, my characters only know what they can know at that moment in time. They don't see the other things. Um, an omniscient observer story where you're not tight enough in any character to be able to really look through that character's eyes and you're looking at him, you're not living in him, that's something I tend not to write. Um, I'm not... You know, either I write nonfiction or I write fiction, but I don't want to write fiction that has chunks of nonfiction in it unless it's something like I, the Sun, where one of the purposes was to take the deeds of Superluliumus, which um, was originally his first person account, but then his grandson redid it. Um, we have a lot of those tablets where he says exactly what, you know, I mean, uh, he went here and he killed these. And he fought with that one, and the weather was such and such, and I was able to put actual Hittite text interspersed with the work that we did. So we had to adjust our style enough that when we went from what we were writing to what he had actually said, it didn't jolt the reader, that the, the voice stayed the same. So that defined the voice for that piece. And anytime you can find a guy who is nice enough to leave you his own story of his life, um, you're 70% there when you find the documents. 
So we're we're uh, it was a purer time, but you know the history is written by the victors, right? So that's that's the downside, isn't it? Like the year. I right. would have to say that the attraction, I, and perhaps you resonate with this, is twofold. One, we're very much attracted to the philosophers of the pre-Socratic era, who lived in a world where gods were in all things and all things were full of gods. And this is not magic. It is a belief system carried forward by an entire culture in which we think there are pieces which are lacking in current day culture and are undeconstructed. In other words, we think that a lot of what has happened in literature is the fractionation of the story into its basic components. And what we love about mythology and ancient philosophy is that it really unifies things much in the way that Einstein did. And we are fascinated to hear these voices speaking across the millennia, which that have even more relevance to our situation, at least what, you know, through our studies we've found. And it is endlessly fascinating to juxtapose them with the sorts of adventure, romance, mystery, uh, humor uh, that is, we find lacking in so much of this narrowly targeted fiction. Absolutely. I think the deconstruction of the novel is a real problem. Um, People now want just the battle scenes tied together by a little bit of talk, where they want just the paranormal or just the romance, and that's the opposite of what we try to do. Um, When we constructed or met, take your pick, Tempest, um, the Riddler, favorite of the storm god, um, we were really combining some elements from middle second millennium BC with, as Chris says, Heraclitus of Ephesus, who was the alter ego for us of Tempest. So Tempest says things that Heraclitus said. One of the most amazing things about the pre-Socratics is that with the Greek level of technology, they could describe the universe so accurately. One of the things Heraclitus said was character is destiny. That's a long time before we understood DNA. Um, and he's absolutely correct. And a lot of the issues that they tackled about the construction of the universe are now proving true. If I had to say who the two smartest people were that the human race had ever produced, I would say Heraclitus and Einstein. I still don't think anybody surpassed either one of them. And the way they look at the universe is eerily similar. So when you have a Tempest character that can have the darkness of Heraclitus and the heroic heroic temperament of Superluliumus, you've got a character that has sustained as many books as Tempest has sustained. It's just endlessly fascinating to me. But so can you can you uh, say more about Heraclitus and Einstein and the similarities? Oh God, um, sure. The world is, was, and always will be an ever-living fire with portions of it kindling and portions going out. Well, that's all, that is modern physics. War is all, and king of all, 
and everything comes into being through strife. Absolutely nails human history. Um, all things are reflected in all things, which is quantum. It's it's the unified field theory. I mean. Yeah. Um, so there are similarities there. Einstein said that he was essentially riding a beam of light back to its origin in order to help himself focus on the essentials necessary to unify his his experience. Um, he also said to the Einstein also said to the extent that mathematics does define reality they are uncertain to the extent that mathematics are certain they don't define reality and uh, Heraclitus said the logos is a thing which steers all things through all things I mean there's parallel after parallel between these two guys and their ability to perceive the world um, in a way that is more than funding physics and more than a philosophy to bring you believers um, neither of them frankly cared very much about that. Um, Heraclitus was also called the Riddler, the Black, and that's why I gave Tempest those epithets. You know, I, I merged those two together to create this intellect that can look at the universe. So we also <laughs> we were trying to get all the Heraclitan fragments, the cosmic. There's two sets: the cosmic fragments and the common fragments, and we were trying to get all the Heraclitan cosmic fragments into modern print in the 80s and 90s before we thought that we, there would be a Gutenberg project. We were kind of laying a breadcrumb trail for people so that the philosophy that really matters comes to them in this really just Heraclitan language. You, you, it's hard to tell where Tempest begins and Heraclitus leaves off. Einstein's sense of the natural world and what could be perceived and what can't be perceived has still not really been surpassed, except in the flat earth way that, yes, um, we can describe how certain things will work, or, and but why they're working, we don't really understand. Um, and we may not understand for a long time. And it's difficult for us as a culture in the way that we handle advances in science not to go off down one rabbit hole or another one um, another guy who's very smart Roger Penrose went down that quantum mechanical rabbit hole for a while and then came back out and um, decried all the stuff he'd done before I mean if you want to read a current brilliant guy read Penrose um, his understanding of how the world came together and why and what it is um, is much clearer than the guys who have to come up with a premise in order to survive in their field. Um, that really isn't the reason to study the natural world. You study the natural world to understand why it happens, not to put over a, um, a feeding tube. <laughs> so, um, you know, you have to watch what you decide to believe in. There's tremendous value in Einstein for everybody. In Penrose, to some extent, especially his trip into and out of these various rabbit holes. But there are many people who don't think that anything physics has done after the Copenhagen orthodoxy is worth paying attention to. 
And I have to admit, I'm sort of one of those. Um, Can I interrupt? And uh, sure, before we get too far from the gods, because uh, I know you you talk about writing metaphysical uh, fantasy, metaphysical military science fiction as well. Um, and now I think as as our listeners hear um, a lot of your point of view, it, it's clear like what that means, metaphysical, um, which I think is great. Uh, I, I do have a question actually for you guys about the ancient world. Um, and th- uh, you spoke of gods uh, and the people believing the gods were essentially you know, a part of everything, part of life. I, this is something I have wondered since I was in high school, <laughs> reading the Iliad, you know, which is really what got me hooked. Do you know in the things that you have read, do you have a sense of how many skeptics were there? Or was that not really a thing then, right? Today you have people who follow certain religions. You have people who are obviously yeah. skeptical. But that was a very different time, you know. Huge question. Homer maintained that he was writing about his grandfather and his grandfather's time, in which men were bigger, stronger, and more intelligent than they were today, in his day. There was a book in the late 70s, early 80s, um, The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind by Julian James. And what he posited was that in the ancient world, the two hemispheres of the brain weren't totally linked together. And these guys did hear and see what they call gods. And it had to do with the way the brain evolved. Now, I don't know whether that's true, but at the time, that's the book that inspired the Dream Dancer series and helped me when I read things like the Battle of Marathon, where everybody swore that gods took uh, took the field. I'm sorry, everybody swore that ghosts took the field and fought on either side. Um, and, of course, the Iliad, where the, the gods came down and, and actually fought. Diomedes is very proud of the fact that he had wounded two Olympians on one day in that battle. I think they, they weren't skeptics as much as adherents. Um, as with Tempest, you'll see Tempest go through. a, a First, he's got Fashanka and when we meet him, and he doesn't like him because he's a local god, and he's they have different philosophical aspects of the world be stuck with him. Then he, he leaves sanctuary and since Vashanka is local, Vashanka can't follow, so he has no God and he's at sea. And then Enlil, um, who is the earliest Akkadian god of of the storm gods. Enlil comes and Enlil means Lord Storm and Ki means Lord Earth, that those gods are so old that when Gilgamesh was written his partner was Enkidu, man of Lord of the Earth. So that sense of whether the you chose your gods out of the pantheon that was available to you, often local, um, sometimes big like Enlil and, and all pervasive, really. And that was your adherency. I mean, the fight between Troy and the Danaeans involved the gods on either side, the gods took sides that was called theomachy or war against the gods or war with gods or gods coming in to fight on either side of a war so when you have a theomachy where the gods are fighting through men you bet they believed in them and there were you were an adherent of this god or that god diomedes and odysseus were told that if they didn't steal the palladium from troy they couldn't win so they had to go steal the Trojan Palladium. 
which they did, which is a statue, you know, maybe three feet high. It wasn't that they couldn't carry it. It's that they had to get to it. Athena wanted it back. But the battles that were fought for God's reasons created a situation where you had, if Chris articulated that better, men died because gods were fighting. And there was a lot of that, of the gods tricking people into going and fighting their battles for them. That's still happening. You've got um, the battle of faiths that is going on today is killing people worldwide. You know, I mean, you've got uh, fundamentalist Islam. You've got extremists of all sorts. Extremists of all sorts. It doesn't really matter. And it may be our way of perceiving the fact that the human race is hardwired to call its numbers in warfare to get rid of a certain number of sociopaths and psychopaths before they can reproduce, and therefore you have this urge to make war. But right now we're in a very pro-war atmosphere. What bothers us about current fiction writing is that it seems that our culture is capitulating to a dystopian anti-hero format, and we think that hope exists only in a hero and that we define a hero as a person who struggles in service to an ideal. It might not be a shared ideal. It might be merely survival, but an ideal. He, he knows why he's struggling. And uh, wins, win or lose, uh, it's a, an honorable pursuit. And we, we have carried that forward in every one of our stories. And Chris did much better because that wasn't my best day ever. Um, did an hour long piece at the Library of Congress by invitation on heroic fiction and the reconstruction of society, where we talked about this denigration of the heroic myth, which you can call common values. I mean, that's very ancient in us that someone will sacrifice their lives or uh, risk their lives to protect others. It's a very ancient theory of ranking your the value of your life and now with a deconstructed fiction we're not passing those common values and that's what the military calls those you know you fight to protect your society you fight to protect the women and children you fight to protect your ideals um, we're not passing that on we're passing on a sociopathic ethic that has a and we, we try to superimpose that ethic on ancient times and it doesn't really work there um, it's kind of the 80s gone wild uh, yeah the portrayals like Spartacus blood and sand are all about the ugly uh, manipulative greedy <laughs> uh, just selfish and childlike aspects of human existence and the thrill of having Supalula Yumis as your narrator is that we took from his texts that he dictated, mostly in the form of treaties and letters to his contemporaries, we realized that he, was, he had a style of speaking which translated into English very well indeed, and Calvert Watkins was very capable of, of making those sorts of thoughtful and sensitive uh, translations of this character. And once we heard that voice, we became determined to create the 
narrative prose style of our first-person narrator uh, in his voice, and we tuned it as carefully and meticulously as we could, and abs- uh, we pretty much succeeded. At least Jerry Pornell thought we did. Yeah. Uh, well, I the Sun continually sells well, despite the fact that if you put modern historical correctness as an overlay, this guy is a villain. Um, but he is exactly what it took to become a conquering hero. He extended his borders from the Black Sea all the way down to the gates of Egypt. Um, he loved his children. He provided for them. His interaction with females really bothers some people, but that was the world as it was then. And the Hittite law code was much more advanced. Women could own property. They could divorce their husbands by picking up their skirts and stepping back three steps and saying, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, and keep their stuff. He had a god, and he's not a, a god-ridden man. The, uh, there's a god that appears in that story, and not toward, not until really the end of his life does he truly admit that he believes in the theology of his people. Um, but he kicks an incredible amount of butt, and he has um, a wonderful voice, and he's the most ancient voice we've tried to give you to put this guy in your head to see what it took to actually be, I mean, Conan was not a, an intellectual bright light. Um, and those stories are very wonderful. And I loved them when I was 11 and they don't give you the ancient world. They give you a piece of a viewpoint that might've existed in the ancient world, but we're trying to actually put you in the head of, of, someone who lived that life and that's why rhesus is is going to take a long time to do because it has to be just correct it has to be right for someone who lived in the 1100s bc but the word ancient is is confusing of its own because evolutionarily of course that was a moment ago just yesterday and perhaps it is today and the fun of it is to show the, the relevance across all those millennia of these consciousnesses struggling away and succeeding in many instances. Subaluliumus in one treaty wrote down, it was a treaty that would bind his uh, daughter or his sister. Yeah, Hugana Safayasa. To a subject king. And he disapproved of the king's culture and the way they behaved sexually. sexually. And he put in the treaty constraints which would forever guide that country from that point on, else Papa would come and punish him. <laughs> yeah, part of the treaty is you will not sleep with your brother or your female cousin in Hadi. That is not right. Um, you know, he and he goes on to, to lay out the rules for personal comportment under which, and if those rules are broken, that voids the treaty and he can go in there. <laughs> um, it was, and his, in the story, his daughter's really upset that he should write all this in a treaty and embarrassed by it. But nevertheless, the Hyacinths were pretty, playing pretty loose with genetics and he didn't like it. So he forbade it. And um, those are the things that you can't make up. Hmm. That I, it would never have occurred to me if it, I didn't have the tablet in front of me, you know, the transliteration of the tablet in front of me 
to have had him take that stand. And I get to be that person when I read the book. Yeah, Chris is. Uh, there's another informative or informant of why we're doing the sorts of things we're doing, if it's of any interest to anybody, is because the sense of anyone creative over a, a lifetime is that we are a, a better person when we are about the art. And we do it to develop in ways that society alone is not affording us. Uh, and it's it's a hell of a trip. <laughs> it's a great adventure. Hope you're on such a trip yourself. And from it sounds like you are. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about the uh, the Hittite leader in Eye of the Sun. What is his name again? Supiluliumus. Means man of the clear spring. All right. So you're able to, what you're saying is you're able to write about him in a way that um, adheres to a kind of a heroic tradition. But... We but well, uh, we have heard his voice in his own writing. He starts right. off. He starts off his own deeds, saying, "Thus speaks I, Superluliumus, great king, king of Hadi, favorite of the storm god, the hero." <laughs> he knows what he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you touched on um, the let's let's call it grimdark, right? The uh, kind yeah. of mo modern movement and. Uh, not a modern movement, but it's a modern term, and uh, the the bleaker, the darker fiction. And um, uh, when you guys look at that today, like we, there's a Facebook group that where I actually met Janet, I think, um, the Grim yeah. Dark Facebook group, and there's you know authors and writers and readers there. Uh, but the you know question came up about the history of, of that type of writing, and you had some great comments there. Um, uh, you feel free to go over any of those things again, or to talk about. Um, you know what what you see as the rightful place you know uh, of the dark in in fiction oh, okay well we got a lot of grief from people who love these world but hated tempest because tempest was a creature of his times and you know he killed one guy and dragged him for 30 feet by the end trails cut a bunch of heads off um killed a couple of eunuchs uh, he was all by himself to begin with in this little town, and the only way he was going to survive it is to scare them into not tangling with him. One of the things about I had already we had already written I the Sun when we did. Well, Bob said, "Give me a bad guy." Yeah, when we did Tapas, and Bob said it was the gritty. It was supposed to be the grittiest, dirtiest, nastiest town in that had ever existed in fantasy, the armpit of fantasy. And he wanted rough, tough characters. And I said, oh, yeah, you're certain? Is this what you want? And he said, <laughs> yes. And out of Superluliumus and the Iliad and all that we've read came Tempest with his Heracletan view of the world. And we just kept Tempest Heracletan. But nevertheless, um, even today, there are people that think Tempest was an antihero. And to me, he's a hero. So there's an argument about that. We write always from that ancient mind and the historical perspective, and those characters don't think the same way that modern characters think. We keep it true to the character. It bothers me when I see the glorification of sociopathy. The sociopathic character, um, you know, there's this a couple of writers who have been able to tame, in a way, the wildness that was in the ancient mind and certainly the wildest. I mean, if you look at uh, the guy who did um, Game of Thrones, uh, it's just as, to me, it's 
um, and very boring writer, so I don't read much of it, but I read enough and saw enough of the TV thing. My characters don't have that universe in which nobody's good, everybody's bad, everybody's stupid. There is no heroic ethos at play, and there's a couple of other guys that are coming along that road that have been taken advantage of this. And I think it comes from gaming, that you have a thirst now for just massive body count and damage without any any consequence um, beyond, you know, okay, so, you know, he kills all his characters and then he gets more characters that are even less ethical. Um, I think I really threw up my hands when the supposed heroic person decides to lop somebody's head off in the town square and the guy is brought in by guards and everybody's standing around and he's tied up. And, then, and so in order to prove himself, this kid goes over and lops the head off an innocent for no reason, you know, just political. Uh, it's it's kind of L.A. in the future. And <laughs> I don't care for that. I, I mean, it's one thing if you kill for a reason, but they're not even, none of those people even care to, to sacrifice for their society. They're only interested in their particular bloodline. And at least he's got some approach to it. But each generation makes a caricature of what impressed them when they write. And so now you've got young writers who have read the Joe Abercrombie stuff and the uh, Martin stuff and, those things and and done gaming exclusively, they bring no higher octave to the table. And you've got writers who haven't read anything, who only watch movies, who are movie literate, they think, and game, and there is no instructive quality, there's no edification in what they produce. They're, they're not writing to the children of tomorrow or their contemporaries or they're not trying to uh, shed light on the human condition. Thank you very much. I mean, can, can we have just that? Without, yeah, Chris is right, without internal dialogue, without understanding how the character feels about something, you might as well be doing a TV movie or a, a movie. If all you can see is stuff from the outside, the literature is no help to you. You read the Iliad at a young age, and it did to you what it did to me. It connected you all the way back to the most ancient minds you can reach to. And it taught you something about humanity um, that nothing else. I mean, what is the Iliad? Um, somebody steals somebody's daughter because of treaties that require them all to come to the aid of the Spartans. All the archives show up, and there. this is all because somebody snatched somebody else's wife, and they go to a 10-year war. And that's the sort of thing that happens. I mean, they forget why they're fighting. Then they're fighting because they've been fighting. Grimdark, is, as a style, can be done with soul and spirit and an informed intelligence because life is dark, and people do die. The price of life is death. So when you have these... Chances to connect. I, I wrote a, a thing called, um, uh, what is it? Um, Seven Against Hell, and it's on Blackgate. You can read it. And it's Diomedes, who's really angry about how his life went and about the fact that he's in hell. And he is not a happy camper, but his ethos guides him. 
And what he has to do is find the flayed skin of Odysseus because Odysseus is walking around with his skin off and in a in huge amount of pain and too weak to go with him. And they do that. In the process of that, I, I did a short list of all the people since Homer who have written about Diomedes and it just, I, I didn't, couldn't even finish it because there's too much to put in a, a hmm. short piece of fiction. But I'm not the only one. Moses, nor are you, that has written dark fiction to connect with the ancient mind. It's been going on for a very long time. All great writers tackle these subjects. I mean, Shakespeare, Epictetus, uh, everybody. You can't write about humans without writing about the internal struggle that everybody undergoes if you're writing honestly. The problem I have with Grimdark is it's like little black and white silhouettes. They're, they leave out the story. They have the events. And I can read history if I want to just read bloody events. All I need to do um, is read the campaigns of Alexander. Yeah, I mean, that'll do it. But everybody wrote this stuff. Everybody took their swat at the ancient world in times up until even the end of the 20th century. Now, it's so derivative, and the goal is different for these writers, and I don't know where they're going to take it, because you can't make writing into a copy of film. Moreover, market-wise, it's silly to further fracture the, the market. Because, well, we went to a Nebula Awards dinner when Isaac Asimov gave the keynote. And he warned us all against being labeled sci-fi rye, as he called it, science fiction writers. He says, you know, pretty soon we're going to be so truncated that all we have is a very narrow footprint in which to keep our mind and soul together. He said, I encourage you to stretch out, try and write in any form, movie scripts, TV, uh, non-fiction, whatever. Says, a science fiction writer is merely someone who can write in, a, in many modalities. And what he was warning against was the self-ghettoization of these writers who had clung to this label in hopes of becoming a market force, when really it was a, a decision on the part of brick-and-mortar booksellers of how much floor space to give this sort of future fiction. So now we have fantasy. We've got, uh, oh God, any number of subcategories. Paranormal of, urban fantasy. Oh my God, it's broken way, way down. And here comes grim, dark, and even smaller ghetto that you can join if you want to give up your license to pursue a wider palette, uh, scope of, of work. Uh, and why? I mean, <laughs> you know, is it just to make friends on the web? You know, yeah, Moses. For your edification, there's a book called um, "Early Greek Novels," the University of California Press, that shows the accretion of the novel as a form. Uh, when all the different parts—the the war story, the mystery, the romance, the suspense, the the terror all come together to create a novel. A novel is supposed to have all of those elements and in some sort of balance. When Thank you. You're, you're welcome. Uh, we walked into a 
Borders bookstore used to exist one day, and we saw that they had racked Wilbur Smith in literature. And I turned to Chris and I said, "It's all over." <laughs> I, mean, if, if, I like Wilbur Smith. He's fun. He's, like he's George my, Martin. Yeah, you know, um, it's like um, chewing gum writing. You know, it's it's automatic. But literature is supposed to bring you into another soul. Uh, the um, Art is life seen through a temperament. If there's no seeing through the temperament, and that temperament is not a unique view of the world, and when you write multiple characters, you have to be really careful that you bring those unique viewpoints um, to each character in the story, and you don't wobble, and each guy is who he is. He's never saying things that a different person would say, never thinking things that a different person would think. But the ancient world is us. That's who we really are. Now... Everybody lies. Used to be, how large an audience do you want to reach? Now it's how small an audience do you want to reach? That comes from the marketing people meeting, you know, with the book people and wanting a small group that they can become number one in. You can become number one in this particular field, and there's maybe 20 people writing in it, but that doesn't matter. You're number one now. Grimdark has a um, a Goodreads page or whatever you call that. And I've spent the last two years trying to understand literature and social media. I have joined a lot of these. I've I've signed up for like 400 groups. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And we used to think that when we wrote and people would come to us and they all had a book under their bed. And we used to say, well, most of those books should stay right there. Um, under those beds because these people are not outside themselves enough. You've got to divorce yourself. In order to write, you have to disappear. You can't be writing to make yourself famous unless you're writing, you know, a certain kind of prose. I mean, it's possible to, to write a thriller and to do that kind of franchisable work and have people read it because there's people whose writing skills or reading skills are going to match. So there's, a, you know, you have 8 billion people. There's there's a writer out there for everybody. But now you've got people who are writing books who have perhaps read 10 books in their whole life. <laughs> you kind of, okay. Well, they're just stealing marketing ideas from wherever they can find them. I mean, how would you like to be the world's expert on same-sex interspecies marriage? <laughs> <laughs> who cares? And care is what it's all about. Anybody who can make me care enough to read the next paragraph is is who I want to spend my time with. Without caring, with, with without getting beyond a mechanistic approach where characters merely spit plot to get to the, <laughs> the next predictable scene is... Is the pitch, and that's where I want to. I want to get out of that bind, out of that box, into something which fascinates me enough to continue. And God help us, that's what we think we're doing. Well, you, now, you guys, did you both take uh, 20 years off? I know that you were working with the government uh, yeah. on some things, right? So, yeah, we both yeah. did. What happened was, I'll, I'll make it very short. We discovered writing about life on space habitats that. The use of kinetic weapons is very limited in a in an in a, a venue where if you compromise the integrity of the, the environment, everybody dies and the game is over. 
So we realized that there was going to be, and there is a crying need for in, for uses of force that are less lethal, uh, less body count, less destructive to property uh, and the environment, and less costly to deploy. So that began the whole idea, and eventually we wrote the damn legislation, which became the law that created the Department of Defense Executive Agent for Non-Lethal Weapons Development. And we had our big, you know, government adventure, and then... <laughs> we wrote federal legislation seven years in a row, and then they, when the, once it was constructed and there was money there, it was dragged down to the level of any other government program, and it became no fun. <laughs> it was fun to begin with. Um, change the world, move the Defense Department five degrees. Uh, you know, and we started the, we were asked by other countries to go and start their non-lethal weapons programs. And we went a lot of cool places and a lot of government cars. And But there are people alive today that wouldn't be alive today. Yeah. If Chris had said to me one day, you know, this is a metaphor. This space habitat is a metaphor for the planet Earth. Um, and I hadn't seen that. And I'm really happy that we did it. You know, it's difficult. You know, that and starting the small publisher, probably the most time-sucking things I've ever done. <laughs> I'd rather just write, but I also want to publish some people who I think really need to be heard. And I have a, a little group of writers that we use for the Heroes in Hell series, and I'm publishing some novels by writers that I think need to be handled with care. I was very lucky. And this is uh, Perseid Press. Yeah, I'm sorry, Perseid. Well, my first editor was Fred Paul. You know, I saw the first draft of the first thing I ever wrote, so it never occurred to me that there had to be a second draft. Um, and I had a, a manual typewriter in the P stuck, so I wasn't about to, you know, I'm not a great typist. <laughs> uh, you've seen my, uh, my stuff online. So somebody knew an agent. They said, if you'll type it up, we'll send it to an agent. And that was expensive to have it professionally typed, so I sat around until I'd written three of them. Um, and then we finally did that, and the agent took it, and Fred Pohl bought it um, for his Bantam program, and his editor that he worked with, I hate to say under him because it was a convivial Assistant. atmosphere, was uh, Sidney Weinberg, and they I, ne I never saw a copy-edited manuscript. They just put it out. Fred wanted one change. I made the change. I got a New York Times review on my first book that said that if it had been the way I originally wrote it, <laughs> the guy would have liked it better. <laughs> so I decided that editors don't know any better than I do. And then my <laughs> second series went to auction in two countries simultaneously on the day my sister died, and it's been a rock and roll kind of adventure ever since. Wow. Um, we had a great time with it. I'm very glad we did the government stuff. Uh, if I turn myself loose, I'd write a very dark book about how that worked, and I may do it yet. But I learned a tremendous amount going around the world, meeting high-end smart people from other nations, trying to do the same thing that I am doing, make the world a little bit better, fighting. Everybody takes their own little patch, and they fight as long as they can. Mm. Um, and it, there's a sort of a think tank operation in the Pentagon that was very small and was run by a friend of my mentor and the the people the kids i like to say now we're all old but the the guys that had been through that program all had a little sign on their desk that said there's only so much stupidity one person can counter <laughs> um and but you know there are people out there trying to fix 
everything that's wrong. Um, those aren't the people the grimdark guys are writing about. They're writing about the people that are doing the stuff that's wrong. And that's where, if I have a differentiation from them, like I think Tempest is a hero. I think Superlumis is a hero. Every once in a while, we get a, a reader review that says, you know, oh, what terrible people. Um, but they're realistic. I don't know if you remember, there was a poetry contest in Chalkitty. Chalkidacy, it's a hard one to say, in Chalkidacy between Homer and Hesiod, who wrote Works and Days. And Hesiod won. It's the Poetry Olympics. It's the Poetry Olympics. And hmm. their justification for pinning Hesiod rather than Homer was that the Iliad was too violent. <laughs> and it was promoting violence as a solution, where Works and Days, if you've read it, is really boring. <laughs> um, but is something that a political group would like to say, you know, we support this. It's how you, how you till your farm better and, you know, how you get along with everybody. It's kind of Marcus Aurelius. Um, speaking of whom, if you like Marcus Aurelius, was really heavily influenced by Heraclitus of Ephesus hmm. and quotes him out of context. There's, there's one road for a writer, and I don't care whether you're James Joyce or Shakespeare or, um, Aeschylus, there's one path, and it's about the human condition, and the human condition should have... Well, people without knowledge shouldn't write Yeah, about. and people people with no knowledge of the world, they say, write what you know about. If you don't know about anything, go learn about something. <laughs> um, there's, there's a value to reading. I love to find a writer who can take me out of myself and make me disappear, because that's what I do when I write. I sit down and I try to disappear and let the character speak. And I, I read, if there's shreds of what the character wrote, I try to read what he said. We're do, doing a <laughs> Shakespeare and Marlowe in hell, and we have a lot of fun. There's a tremendous amount of what they wrote and what they wrote together and things that each of them wrote that uses the other stylistic conventions, and you'll never know what really happened. But it's a lot of fun, and I usually use Marlowe's perspective because he was a spy and a roughhouser and fun to write about, uh, less complicated in a way than Shakespeare. Shakespeare wrote about Diomedes. He wrote about Aeneas, did you know? There's, there's so much great stuff out there to read. I hate the thought that people don't continually try to read at a higher and higher level. I mean, reading is something that one accomplishes. And what you get back is another view of the universe, you hope. And as I said, for me, the ancient universe is the most refreshing. And the further I get back in time, the, the more inspiring I find it to be to read what they wrote and try to bring that forward into a more assimilable form, because I think it is who we are. I, I could really listen to you guys all day. <laughs> are, you, are you an editor? Um, I have not done editing yet, no. Okay. Um, it's my punishment from hell. I haven't read what you've done, and maybe Janet has? I've some enough to know yeah. I wanted to do this interview. I mean, he's got a, a real sense of self. Um, you, I can't, a writer that, is, that has got a voice and is armed and dangerous because they've read some history and they have some perception... Um, is always interesting to me. So we're old and cranky, and <laughs> but we've got some insights which are really helpful to people who 
are wondering this and that about how to approach a story and why doesn't my character come to life? <laughs> or and, and we are really dedicated to pulling back the curtain on what we've found, and it's a lot of fun to do it. However, the literacy rate seems to be dropping off, and books in print, whether it's electronic or paper, are competing for eye time, E-Y-E time, because everyone carries something around which is flashing at them and uh, distracting their the time that they would spend reading with other visual input. So that's why I, in particular, am very excited about the audiobook thing, because it, in one stroke, it reestablishes the ancient urge of a child to sit around a light of some sort and listen to a story, adding his own content to make sense of it. And if we can somehow regain, recoup, reunify those, that audience, uh, then there's a prayer that the intellectual life of the, the emerging, what? Creature, when, whatever we're yeah, going to be. Whatever this race is aimed for, uh, will wake up in time to save itself from the catastrophe of being too narrow, too selfish, too greedy, too immediate, too myopic. And um, and pull us into a cohesive planetary whole. So then, boy, can, does that get utopian in a hurry? <laughs> you read the sacred band. You know that we try to force the reader to pace. We're trying to teach him how to think like heroes. And it's different. But when Chris reads it, that sense of pacing is automatic because the voice paces it. The the intriguing thing about the audiobooks to me is it's the oldest form. That's what Homer wrote. The 15,000, I think 732, or might be 572 lines of the Iliad, they had to memorize that. That's why it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't always written down. It was written down later. It's, it's also that, very that always lyrical. Blows my mind. Yeah. Are you mind, musical but... at all? Um, not A little bit, not really. Okay, well, when two people sing the same song, you get two different songs, two different stories, two different experiences entirely. And the privilege of me narrating this stuff is that it's as close to what was intended at the inception as it can be. Chris Morris, you, you know, so he, uh, for those who maybe aren't totally clear on this, Chris Morris did narrate the audiobook for The Sacred Band. Right, right. And, and he's now doing I the Sun, which oh, cool. is. Completely, yeah, because, you know, I think some of the names in... I've also done a dark fantasy title by Roy Morrison called The Shards Queen Cinder, which recreates Goldilocks, Cinderella, Snow White, and and uh, tells a very dark tale about their future after what we know of their fairy tales. But the, what the, the narrator brings, before we did our own, we hired... Um, Alex Hyde White to do too for us. He's um, uh, from from a background of very fine English actors and voice actors, and we learned a lot from him. But now, forever, when I read those lines, I hear him in my head. <laughs> um, normally, I just hear the story in my head with the Sacred Band, and sometimes with other books. If I hit a certain pitch, when I'm finished writing for the day, 
I don't remember anything that I read until Chris reads it to me. I that I wrote. I have no idea what's on that page because I'm in the character and I dissolve into the character. The character's talking. Um, I take dictation. I come out and then it doesn't get real for me until I hear him read it. So the metaphysical aspect of writing, and if you talk to any good writer, they'll tell you the first thing is you've got to make yourself disappear. And you've got that character has to be solid enough to show up and, and take you. And if I can't take myself, I certainly can't take anybody else. And sometimes with modern characters, you can give a character something that makes him easy for you to recoup. Like when in Out Passage, which is my experiment with a very fast, extremely tight split perspective where what you see is so completely only what that character sees. Um, and it's a very abbreviated style. But what I did is I gave Cox what has later been termed PTSD. So this character doesn't trust himself. He's been in psychiatric care for 30 years uh, because of some stuff he saw on another planet. And that's where the metaphysical part comes in. And they've convinced him he didn't see it. So he doesn't want to ever see it again. And that sets that character's nature so completely that I could write another book with him. It's 20 some odd years later with that character now. And I wouldn't have a wobble. So once you find the inherent thing about the character that is special to him and specific to him, um, you have story. And you can go really wherever your heart wants to take you and where the character wants to take you. But so much now is mechanical. They construct a character and run it through a maze, artificial difficulties, almost as if they're doing a, a game. And that isn't what we publish and isn't what we think is worth people's time. So you also have people who could never read my stuff in a million years. Just the vocabulary would be too much. For them, there's lots of people that write what they want to read. Me, I have to write what I want to read. <laughs> people who want to maybe hear more of your perspective on writing and, and maybe the world, is there a blog? Is there a place where they can go for this sort of thing? Um, uh, kind of, sort of. Um, you know, we're a little sketchy about self-promotion. I grew up in a world where the publisher did it for me. And I didn't want to go back to New York publishing because I was so curious about the adventure of all of this electronic stuff. But we do have, we have a blog, ish blog called sacredbander.com. One word, S-A-C-R-E-D dot, I'm sorry, S-A-C-R-E-D-B-A-N-D-E-R dot com. And what I've done is I've put a lot of the interviews that we've had on other blogs up there so they can read them if they want. The hour-long piece for the Library of Congress is on YouTube, and it says the Morris is at Library of Congress is what it's titled. So they can get an hour of that. And Chris reads from three or four different um, bits of our heroic fiction, and that's worth the price of admission. That's really cool. Um, I know I should do a blog, but I haven't got any time um, between trying to write my stuff, edit my writers. for the, I'm doing two anthologies a year. I'm trying to get Reese's finished, and then I'm going to do another Sacred Band book. So life kind of 
I need another person or I need to be another person. The two of us have all on our plate and then some that we can handle, but we're right. We found some great young writers that we're bringing along. Um, If you take a look at the Heroes in Hell books, you can see the short fiction we published on the four hell books um, that are in ebook form as uh, Lawyers in Hell, Rogues in Hell, Dreamers in Hell, and Poets in Hell. And Poets in Hell is not soft. It's very hard-edged. It just sounds soft. You'll see that we're starting to use some people that will will surprise you. They're exciting. Um, and it's just as much fun for me to publish somebody. Like, I have a new writer that we're going to do three novels with called Andrew Weston, and he lives in Coffs, Greece, and he was a Royal Marine. And he's absolutely brilliant. And... Um, I read some of his stuff and said, you know, I'd really like to publish this guy. So we're publishing him. We're going to do Tom Boxack, a novel with him. Um, or I'm going to upset somebody who isn't mentioned. And a, a half a dozen others, but those two come to mind. You would like uh, Andy Weston. Uh, like us, he writes some categorizable stuff. You know, something starts in the future and then it goes to the past and then it goes somewhere else. It Just a another polymath who can take me completely out of myself so that I don't know what time it is or what day it is. And that's what I want from a book. I want to go there. I don't want to be here. I can be here all by myself. I don't need any help. So hmm. is this your first kid? Uh, my third. Third. Okay. My, my first son is, uh, his name is Athens actually. And then, oh, uh, <laughs> and then uh, Sasha's my daughter and you know, that's a diminutive of Alexander. So we've, we've got the theme going. Yeah, so who's your favorite character from the Iliad? Favorite character? Well, uh-huh. I, I, my gut says Hector. Um, uh, I can see that. What a hero. Mine has always been Diomedes, so. No. And then, of course, I found Rhesus. But Hector, that you, you like the Aeneid, then. Yeah, I actually translated a little bit of it when I was taking Latin in high school, and we translated the beginning of the, of the Aeneid. That was another neat neat thing about you know that name, was having that connection to the to the story. Do you read to the children? Yeah, I'm always working on finding more and more things to read to them, you know, better and better choices. My son is about to be eight, so yeah. uh, he's getting to that age where it's starting to open up more things yeah. I can do, you know. Yeah, uh, absolutely. My parents read me. My mother had a master's in education, and my father had gone to Harvard on a scholarship and taken um, Shakespeare from Shakespeare Kitteridge um, many, many years ago. And they didn't believe in children's books hmm. so at three and four and five i got bullfinch's mythology um spencer's fairy queen shakespeare everybody and that was what they read to us as when we were children hmm. and between that and having those things quoted around the house because of my father's specialty in shakespeare i grew up already in a kind of an altered universe from what the, I mean, I have never to this day read Dr. Seuss or any of that. Um, cause I was started it in a different way. So I would suggest you could read some of that stuff to your kids, but you're probably already doing that. Uh, I recently picked up actually uh, boy's life by, is it Robert McCannon? McCammon? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how much that is actually going to be appropriate. We've, I've been reading some of it with my son. It's beautiful because it has this sort of nostalgia that reminds me of Ray Bradbury, but uh, this sort of, you know, American Holmesy kind of quality as well. And 
Um, it's just it's been fun to actually read him something at that level. Uh, although I have to censor some things as I go. You know? I um, would read him uh, Childhood's End by uh, Clark. Arthur Clark. That might not be bad. It's just it's, you know I just remember Spencer's Fairy Queen and um, Midsummer Night Dream. And my first encounters with those and the myths. By the time I was nine, I'd been through every myth in every library for three surrounding towns. The Star Rover by Jack London. Yep. Do never read them. The Red Pony by Steinbeck. It's my most hated book of all time. <laughs> um, there's no justification for somebody. Collapse of English civilization. The value of what you engage in when you read and when you write, I don't care if what you're doing, reading to the next generation out loud, is just as important as what Chris is doing, um, writing an audio book or reading an audio book or what any of us do, because story is how we communicate. Uh, there was a very expensive study just done on how humans organize information, and guess what? Humans organize information in story form. Hmm. What a surprise, right? Millions of dollars later, they've ratified the thesis. And that's why I'm critical of writers who write with no point. You know, if the, if the point is only to tell us that humans are evil to each other, you can watch the news. If the point is humans are evil to one another, and then again a heroic soul steps in and makes a difference, then that's a story. So, you know, you have to, and the heroic soul doesn't have to be Mr. Whitebread, as if you've read my stuff, you we know. I love the Marvel stuff. Yeah, I love, but the, that's a good example of what happens when a director takes control. The Rana's Thor oh. is so much better than the new one or the ones that he wasn't involved with. The, uh, you get a great director, and he gets so much more out of the same lines. You know, it's not like he's not rewriting their lines, um, but he's allowing the ethos that's in the story to come through. And that's, whether it's fewer words or more words, that's really what we're talking about. We're trying to communicate each generation what's important about the human condition to the next. Write the book you want to read, and you might get lucky. <laughs> Do you try to limit their viewing time, or do they get as much as they want? Or only? You know, my son goes to a, a Waldorf-inspired charter school, so a lot of the parents at the school limit their screen time. Uh -huh. um, and we agree with that in theory, uh, and yet as modern parents with three kids, sometimes, yeah. sometimes they turn on the Kindle Fire and they watch something, you know. Um, yeah. We, we do try to be aware of what they're watching. Um, yeah. You know, games or, or uh, anything that's too violent, you know, anything that's, you know, we, we, we censor some things like that, you know. Um, if you're there to react, that's all that anyone could ask. Yeah, and I, I can't say that we're always there, but, you know, but we, we know, like, what shows, you know, we encourage them to watch. And, you know, I think we, they do pretty well with that. You guys have really inspired me today. Just I'm just I'm just absorbing everything, and um, no, there, there's some there's some neat ideas too. I think you know I, I I've really been thinking of something of a charitable nature that I'd like to eventually do. You know, um, as an author, hopefully someday you know widely read enough to matter. Um, you know, uh, off to a decent start, but could certainly do a lot more. Um, just do it. Just just try. Um, you know, the charitable thing is. Very important. Well, you know, what I was going to say about that is, uh, you know, you've actually given me this idea of um, 
inspiring younger actually nurturing inspiring and nurturing and uh, having certain younger people uh, maybe you get people when they're young who want to have a well-rounded education in literature and writing you know and, and the theory of writing and things like this because uh, <clears throat> you know I realize that you know having you know, having a child who grows up today, it's easy for them to fall into a typical American pattern. You know, we're, we're present in their lives, but um, that typical American pattern, as you said, it involves a lot of competition for their eyeballs, you know, um, a lot of just peer influence uh, that that is, I th- that is in a lot of ways, ways taking us away from literature and uh, even reading in some ways, you know. Um, and I think I, I think at some point there has to be a a specific concerted effort to to try to address that, you know, and, and what what would it be like to have, let's say, you know, um, a nonprofit organization where certain children were essentially sponsored, you know, and encouraged in terms of their education, kind of a perhaps a long distance academy sort of thing, you know. Sign me up. I'll, I'll try to help if you do it. Because um, we try to do it, but one on one, it's very difficult, you know. I mean, I can touch only a few. And about fifth, we don't have kids. We went to a fifth grade class about, oh gosh, 15, 20 years ago and gave a little talk about what we did and put some books out in front of them and they looked at them and we gave our spiel and then we took questions. And the first question was, how big is your house? And this next question was, what kind of car do you have? Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Another kid asked, if, How much do you make? Yeah, if you write a book, could I put my name on it? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, they, they, you have to inculcate values in people. Um, there has to be a value greater than self-indulgence. There has to be, I mean, discipline. Um, somebody said, well, you know, in one of the things we did, these characters don't yell and scream at each other, and they don't stand there and spit plot at each other. And to some who've been watching complete diet of TV fiction where one character comes in and spits plot at another or they all stand around watching a screen which splits, spits plot at them um, and everything is externalized, they're not learning anything. They're not learning how to deal with complexity. They're not learning how to deal with frustration. They're not learning how to pick yourself up and try again. Um, the things that really matter are getting left out in favor of very large explosions. And it's okay, fine. How many of those can you watch? The learning process for a writer is unbounded. And the writers that aren't still learning, that are just aping themselves, it's the problem you run into with these guys who franchise themselves. You know, we tried franchising with the Hell series and Merovingian and the rest of them. And it's very hard to keep the quality and keep moving and keep forcing growth. But the younger writers that are coming along, when I find one, I'm so thankful. And there are things that they don't, they've not been taught. They don't understand how to use punctuation. They don't understand how to use tenses. They don't know how to transition. Everybody now transitions with a line drop. Um, they can't pull time and action along. There are technical things that we can teach them, but James Joyce said the only thing a novel has to be is interesting, and that's what's missing is the interesting. I mean, make it interesting for me to look through your eyes. Show me something I haven't seen before. Describe things in a way that I've never heard before. That's what I want. I want to broaden my experience. Reading has the unique ability 
of being completely personal. The book that you read, what it does in your head, is completely tailored to you. It's not the experience that anybody else is going to have reading that same book because your vocabulary, your internal vocabulary is different. Character is going to look different to you. It's going to sound different to you. To to take that brilliance of the human race and reduce it to a bunch of tropes that are lifeless is just a terrible waste of time. When we wrote nonfiction, nonfiction is the hardest thing to do well in many ways because you're so limited by the strictures of reality. You can't take a flyer uh, in a 600-word or 1,000-word op-ed. Um, writing the, the federal legislation for non-lethals, in the first paragraph, you have to tell them what you want, why you need it, why we, the country, needs it, um, how much does it cost, and when can they have it. And that has to be in the fir- first four sentences of any request for federal funding. So those disciplines, when, when they write for hell, they have to submit to me their choice of three characters that have to be mythical, historical, or legendary. They can't be fictional characters. They can't be someone else's fictional character either. And then they have to give me a two-line synopsis of what the story is going to be about. And if they can't do that, they can't write for help. So it forces the issue. It forces them to think. But um, a nonprofit of the sort that you're describing might be one of the saving graces that we would have because this excellence isn't normal. People who are really brilliant are not like everybody else, and they can be left out and marginalized and given drugs to make them more manageable when they're kids and more like the other kids, or they can be let run too free and have no discipline, and no writer can write without discipline. So, you know, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of value in helping the talented. Yeah, so how can we get, uh, Janet, get you to, you know, teach some kind of workshop, or uh, do you... I don't know if you ever do that at, at conventions or if it's something you might consider doing online. Uh, I would love to do it online. I would do it at conventions if somebody asked me and wanted to pay me to go there and do it. But, you know, it's I have the expense a, of doing it. It's just the expense, and, and yep. it's, it's a twofold expense. It, it takes you away from the pile of stuff you have to do. Um, you know, I'm doing two anthologies a year. The submission pile is horrific. Wow. Um, the... Uh, the value of it, I'd love to do a course um, or workshops online. And I have one podcast guy who suggested we're going to do some of those, but it's only one victim at a time. <laughs> he brings in a writer and we try to help workshop that writer's concept. I would love to do whatever we can do. You know, we're getting to the age where we know we're not going to be around forever. And as much as I'd like to be Tempest and uh, live on and be annoyed at everyone eternally. I can't. <laughs> I have to do the best that I can. Um, you know, if you think of something, we'll be, uh, we're open to almost anything. I mean, there are things that people can learn about how to approach distilling a story that nobody tells them. And for the rest of them, they can sign up for Grammarly and they can get their, ba- their basic grammar corrected, which is really, it's a decent grammatical site. Um, but it, too, you know, there's nothing on the web that can make you a writer, at least not now. Um, there's there's something that can fix your grammar if you're writing nonfiction, and that for some people is necessary. But consider that all the rules that people try to give you 
and it bothers me when I see it online. Don't use passive voice. Um, mm-hmm. Don't use words like it. Okay, let's not use it. What are we going to do with it was the best of times, it was the worst of times? <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to do with Shakespeare? You know, and you can't just, you can't take words. Then some pulp writer, it might have been Stephen King, but it's one of these guys who was hugely successful with very simple writing, has told people they should never use adverbs. Okay, fine. We have a whole class of word that's now been stricken from the vocabulary of a host of people who needed all options available to them. There's there's no rule that can't be broken. There's You don't have to write full sentences. You can write fragments. You can write single word paragraphs. You can do anything you can pull off. But what we need to teach them is how to evoke story. And there's ways to do that. Well, I got to run. Yeah, well, I'm, we're going to have to talk more about this because, because uh, right. you know, I'd, I'd like to hear and I'd like for other people to hear more. Um, so, uh, okay. well, yes, so thank you very much for joining us. It's been, like, just an incredible time here. So um, I can't wait to share this with people and um, can't wait to keep talking to you guys about some of these things, too. So. Um, okay, well, do you let me know when you do whatever you're going to do with this so I can see how it comes out? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, uh, send me your phone number, if you would. All right, we'll do. Um, thank you guys very much. And, thank you, uh, sir. It's been an honor. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast.